0: He's breaking it down so you don't have to. This is Breaking It Down with Frank McKay on 107.1 WLIRFM Hampton Bays.
1: I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here, but much more importantly, author and the TV critic for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, Mark DeWidziak, is my very special guest. His latest effort is out today. You can get it today. And the name of the book is Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone. Hey, Mark, how are you? I'm
0: good. Thanks, Frank. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing wonderfully. And I'm also a huge Twilight Zone fan. We've had Anne Sterling on and I know she's a good friend of yours. I would have to believe she approves of your book.
0: Well, I hope so because she wrote the foreword to it. So that's always a yeah, it's, it's it's always a good sign when somebody agrees to write a foreword for your book. So I I think he may have endorsed it a little bit.
1: Yeah. Now, I mean, is it self help? And I'm not being facetious. Can you look at it in a category as being self help? And I know it's fun, and I know Twilight Zone fans are going to love it. But can we expect to actually get a different perspective from the book?
0: Well, let me put it this way: I, I think the book is. Um, it, it's kind of a lighthearted self-help book, if you will, but it is more a tribute to the Twilight Zone and what the writers did. And I'll, 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 the best way to explain it is to sort of explain how it came about. Um, you know, and then to do that, I have to explain that in the early 1980s. Uh, yes, he just went all the way back to the early 1980s. Um, I, I was the dream of my life was to write a history of the Twilight Zone. Uh, that's what I thought my life mission was to do. And then I had, uh, an experience that many writers have had of walking into a bookstore and seeing that somebody had already done it. And in this case, it was Mark Scott's, the Twilight Zone companion, which most Twilight Zone fans will know, um, as a book that they, they, they've thumbed the, the cover off of. Mm. And Mark did such a wonderful job on that book that I couldn't even be mad. Uh, which I've told him uh, many times over. I said, yeah, I couldn't even be angry because you did such a great job on that book and a much better job than I would have ever done. But in the back of my mind, it's one of those always been my favorite TV series. I always kind of figured I was owed a Twilight Zone book. And that's silly to think that way, but I did. And I, I, I then set my sights on doing a book as good as the Twilight Zone's companion, Mark's book, on my second favorite series, which was Columbo. And... So that book was published in 1989. And I was trying to aim at what Mark had done with the, the the Twilight Zone Companion. And then I did another book on The Night Stalker, a history of the Night Stalker series with Darren McGavin. And, um, you know, eventually I was working my way back towards The Twilight Zone. And when my daughter was about uh, 14, 15 years old, she'd seen an awful lot of classic television. She'd seen uh, Night Gallery. She'd seen episodes of... Thriller and Alfred Hitchcock presents. And when she turned about fourteen or fifteen, I said, "All right, it's now time for your postgraduate work. It's now time to get the real stuff. It's time for you to learn the Twilight Zone." (laughs) So I pulled out my box sets of the Twilight Zone, and we started a a forced march through the entire run of the series, every single episode, starting with the first one and working our way through. And something happened about the third or fourth episode. Is the one with David Wing called Escape Clause, where he makes a deal with the devil for immortality. He signs a contract, he gives away his soul for immortality, and anybody who has spent any time in the Twilight Zone knows this is a mistake. You've signed a bad deal. Yes. And we got to the end of the episode, and David Wayne's character has gotten his comeuppance, and I jokingly turned to Becky, my daughter, and I shook my finger at her and said, now let that be a lesson to you. And we laughed, and then I thought for a second, and I thought about all the people in this country who have signed bad contracts, all the people who, the, the, the housing crisis, and everybody who signed things that they didn't know what they were signing. I thought, wait a minute. No, I'm serious. I'm yeah. very, very serious. Let this be a lesson to you. And this became a running gag. Uh, every time we watch a Twilight Zone episode, I would turn it back and say, oh, that must be a lesson to you. And by the time... I had done this, repeated this a few times. The penny finally dropped in my head. Just, wait a minute, there's a book in this. Definitely. There's a book in the whole idea that you can live your life by the life lessons that were handed down in the Twilight Zone, that this was a deeply moral series, and that each lesson contained, each, each episode contained a lesson, a moral, that you should take to heart. So I thought if you could... Full 50 episodes, or 50 lessons out of these episodes, you might have a fun book and at the same time be paying tribute to what Rod Serling and the writers like Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont and George Clayton Johnson did with this, with this series, The Power of Imagination, the power of metaphor, of using metaphor to address the human condition, our society. You look at an uh, America today, and then you look at an episode like the monsters are doing Maple Street, and you Great. think uh, it's it's perfect. It's it's perfect. Everybody in America needs to sit down and watch that episode. Everybody needs to 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 realize what Arthur Schlesinger said, uh, which which is reflected in that episode, which is the motto of the country: "Is e pluribus unum," uh, out of many, one. And Arthur Schlesinger the historian famously said what we need in this country is a whole lot less pluribus and a whole lot more unum and that is the message of that episode divided we fall
1: I want to remind people of who they're listening to they're listening to Mark DeWidziak he is the TV critic for the Cleveland Plain Dealer and a long time over there but also an author of so many books his latest you can get starting today Everything I Need to Know, I Learned in the Twilight Zone. Frank McKay here with the author, Mark DeWizziak. You mentioned Charles Beaumont and obviously Rod Serling and some of the other writers. And, you know, of course, they used Ray Bradbury. They used some stories of his. Do you think that Serling, Beaumont, and some of the others realized how heavy a show they were doing, it seemed to me that they knew they had something. It wasn't like a shock and, you know, later on they realized that it was going to have legs. To me, it seemed like the creators of that show knew what it was and knew how good it was immediately.
0: The, the short answer is yes. And the reason they did is because Rod Serling was ahead of his time in so many different ways. But one of the ways he was ahead of his time was a very practical way, is Rod, we take for granted today, the writer who becomes the producer and showrunner takes control of a show because they want to control the vision of what a show is. Somebody like David Chase or yeah. Vince Gilligan, we take that for granted. Rod was the prototype for that. The person who was a writer, but wanted to control the message, wanted to control the, the, the shape of something as much as he possibly could. And in television, the person that does that is the producer. And Rod understood that. So Rod was the showrunner on The Twilight Zone, and he went into The Twilight Zone after making his reputation as one of the uh, angry young men, the young lions of live television. And he had made his reputation doing landmark TV dramas, live TV dramas like Patterns and Requiem for a Heavyweight for Playhouse 90. Yeah. And just searingly good work. Amazing. I've watched uh, as much of that as I possibly can. And it's just remarkable how much, and I I, I say this in the book, that, you know, the the off-quoted F. Scott Fitzgerald line is that, you know, there are no second acts in American lives. Well, the Twilight Zone was the second act. Rod Serling already had a first act, which is remarkable when you realize he only lived to be 50 years old. And the first act was that era of live television. But that leads directly to the Twilight Zone. He was so frustrated. By the censorship. He was so frustrated by the network standard and practices offices coming in and saying, Well, you can't say that. You can't do that. And because he was always attacking things like racism and prejudice. And so he went into the Twilight Zone because he understood innately, he understood that if I dress this up in the garb of fantasy, they're just going to see the Martians and the spaceships, and they're not going to worry that well, I'm really talking about the same thing I was talking about when I was doing these live TV drops, which is, ex- Frank, that's exactly what he did. Yeah. He just took the same things. He just took the same thoughts and passions, and he, and he moved them. He packed them all up, put them in a suitcase, and he moved them the Twilight Zone. And that's what you get when you watch the Twilight Zone. So the answer is yes, absolutely. And then he recruited the best fantasy writers out there. And the two principal ones that really became the key writers, uh, contributors to the Twilight Zone after Rod, were uh, two guys who are actually very, very close friends. Richard Matheson, who had written I Am Legend and The Shrinking Man at that point, and Charles Beaumont. And they really are the the core writers. George Clayton Johnson didn't write as many, but he wrote some episodes, like Nothing in the Dark and A Game of Pool. Mm. So you have this sort of core of writers who very much did understand the mission of the twilight
1: zone again i'm going to remind folks that mark dowidziak is the voice you're hearing his book is available you can get it anywhere books are sold basically google it everything i need to know i learned in the twilight zone frank mckay here with mark dowidziak who was also a long-time tv critic for the cleveland plain Dealer, which is a great gig to have i mean it's a nice deal to sit around and talk about TV all the time and to critique it. And you mentioned a couple of modern guys and still consider them modern. David Chase, who was the Sopranos creator and the showrunner, and of course Vince Gilligan from Breaking Bad, they created masterpieces. I mean, absolute masterpieces. And it's really part of a new genre. And, you know, I would think it is. It's the cable ongoing, you know, the first one was the mob opera and Sopranos and Breaking Bad was, but in some ways, you really hit on it with Rod Serling. He predated these guys by 40 years, by 50 years. And and he's their hero. He, yeah. If you ask them, each and every one,
0: if you ask them what writer most influenced you, what show most influenced you, they will all tell you Rod Serling, The Twilight Zone. They all go back to that. Matt Weiner, who did Mad Men, same thing. Same answer. <laughs> You know, you look at the people who created the greatest television of the last 20 years, and they have one thing in common. Their idol is Rod Serling.
1: What was he considered on set? I mean, I know it's Rod. Everyone knew he was the boss, but what was Rod Serling considered? Would they say, oh, that's the producer, Rod Serling. That's the creator. That's the right. You know, what would they say before they said Rod Serling? What was he? They didn't use the term showrunner, but what did they call Rod Serling?
0: I think he was just Rod. I think he was he was this this, this, this incredible whirlwind of activity. You look at the the Twilight Zone, and uh, the, there's uh, I believe 156 episodes of the Twilight Zone, and Rod wrote more than 90 of them. Mm-hmm. So you know he was constantly involved. He worked. He was just this whirlwind of energy and work. And, you know, there, one of the things I did for the book is I solicited what I call guest lessons, and I didn't put any restrictions on people. I said, you can send me one sentence. You can send me an entire uh, essay if you'd like. But running throughout the book are 33 guest lessons. David Chase uh, contributed one. Hmm. Um, Robert Redford sent me one. Carol Burnett sent me one. Uh, Mel
1: Brooks. Who knew that Mel Brooks was an incredible Twilight Zone fan? He is. What, what did he and send he you? What did, the what did Mel Brooks send you? What show? Uh, he didn't. He sent
0: me. I told him you can you can also do this uh, key to a uh, episode if you'd like. You can key it to uh, one lesson. You can do whatever you want. I I, I put no restrictions on this at all. And uh, I say just all, all it has to do is uh, is is address the Twilight Zone in some way. And this is what Mel Brooks sent me. Right? It's only one paragraph. The greatest lesson I learned is that you need to reserve judgment and seriously buy into the creation and design of the filmmaker. You've got to give it all up and go along with the magic. Every time I watched The Twilight Zone I was completely ready to surrender to it. That was the mystery of that is what the mystery of creation is all about. Give yourself over to that wonderful wonderful mystery.
1: Isn't that wonderful? Leave it to Mel, That's Brooks. Mel Brooks.
0: Yeah, wow. I mean That's that is Mel Brooks. So, That is brilliant. So, so, and I asked anybody. So, so some people sent me, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson sent me a, a beautifully praised uh, little essay uh, based on The Invaders. So some people went to specific episodes that spoke to them. Others went for uh, just a lesson that they learned from the show in general. So, And I put no restrictions on them. And George Clayton Johnson sent me one. Um, he, you know, he passed while the book was being written, as did a few others. Fritz Weaver, who is in the obsolete man, and third from the sun. Yeah. Wonderful actor. He sent me one, you know, and he had and he passed before the book uh, was finished. So and then there were ones from people I i interviewed years ago, like Jack Klugman wow. and Ray Bradbury. You know. So these are the ones throughout the book and it's just a little something you stumble on as you read the book, throughout the book, you stumble on these kind of guest lessons. And uh, it's just a way of personalizing the
1: book. Let me take a couple of episodes, and I'm going to throw them at you. And the one being, of course, with uh, Shatner. There were two, you know, real famous episodes with Shatner. But the one in the coffee shop with the devil's head, and he keeps asking the questions, and he's there with his wife, very superstitious guy. And he just can't make a decision in his life without... You know, at this point, he just turns it completely over to this machine, and it just keeps running out these different things, and he's buying into it. Did you address that episode in the show, in the book rather?
0: Yeah, oh, very much. It has its own chapter, and you know, the, the, and the obvious lesson there is uh, don't let superstitions rule your life, uh, which is certainly a, a, a great lesson from that episode, and it's powerfully done it also is, a, underneath that, is a is a sort of a more profound lesson. Because, you know, Richard Matheson wrote that episode, and, and I got to know Richard very well. Of all the people in Twilight Zone, the person I got to know the best was, was Richard, and I ended up editing three collections of his work. So we got to know each other pretty well. And uh, Matheson was just a wonderful writer, just fantastic. And I, I love it when I did this with my students last night. I, We got to talking about I Am Legend, and I said, to Richard Matheson, and nobody knew the name. Nobody recognized the name. And I said, you don't recognize the name, but I guarantee you, you know his work. You know, and then I mentioned the gremlin on the wing and, yeah. and they were like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They, they all know the work. So, but one of the things I love about that episode is that Matheson doesn't rule out the possibility that that machine has magical powers. That episode is so slyly designed. You can interpret it either way, that it's just coincidence that the machine is telling them what they want to hear, or maybe it does have uh, some supernatural powers. So there's a bigger lesson at play there, and it isn't hinged on whether or not the machine has the ability to predict the future. And that's underscored when Shatner's wife, the character played uh, Patricia Breslin, who plays uh, the wife in that. Uh says they need to get away from the diner and they need to get away from the machine. And Chatner's character says, even if it's true, and she says, especially if it's true. Right. Wow. It doesn't matter whether it can foretell the future. What matters is whether you believe more in luck and in fortune than you do in yourself.
1: Excellent. Well that's the
0: lesson, a lesson guys.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, no question. A heavy situation. Frank McKay here. With Mark DeWidziak, the name of the book is Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone, and it is out today. He is the TV critic for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and just a wonderful book and a wonderful concept for a book. Again, Frank McKay with Mark DeWidziak. And Mark, I'm going to mention an episode, and I don't know whether this fits into your book, but to me as a kid, anything that touched on the devil in regular mainstream, tv always was shocking to me because i guess i grew up a catholic and uh, i was an altar boy and all this and you were so afraid of the devil and there was so much there and when i saw the howling man it was charles Charles beaumont when i saw that transformation and they did the sequence where he slowly turns into the devil and then at the end he's satan to me it was absolutely shocking just a shocking thing as a kid and i guess maybe even the most terrifying thing that the twilight zone ever showed you, because a lot of it wasn't supposed to be terrifying. It was supposed to be disturbing. It was supposed to be whatever, but that's right. But address that for a second. shows like the howling man, where do they stand? First of all, did you get anything in the book on the howling man? Yes.
0: There's there's an entire chapter on the howling man as well. And there's an entire lesson derived from the howling man, uh, which is a biblical lesson actually. Um, you know in in essence the, the name of that chapter is take care of your own inner demons before you go meddling with others because the, right. the you know, basically what unleashes the devil is is his own pride his own goodness, his own inability to listen to these monks who have the the devil imprisoned and he sees them as being crazy and he sees to them and it is the biblical uh Injunction against judging, you know. Take care of the 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 beam in your own eye before you uh, take care of the speck in your neighbor's eye, um, and and this is what allows the, the devil to escape. The devil plays on human frailty. The devil plays on that, and so there, yeah, that 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 actually that episode gets an entire chapter in the book unto itself. And I and I agree, it's it's, it's a very very powerful episode. Uh, it has a wonderful performance from John Carradine in it, who had a long uh, history in the horror
1: realm. We're coming up on a quick break. We're with Mark DeWidziak. He is the author of many books, but the one we're focused on today comes out today. Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone. I'm a huge fan of not only Mark, but I'm a huge fan of the Twilight Zone, so you could imagine how excited I am about this book. He's the TV critic for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and he will be with us right after this break. Real quick, give a website or a social media site or someplace you think the best way to follow what you're doing with the book.
0: Well, you can always go to my website, which is markdewidziak.com. There is an Amazon uh, profile on the book, of course. So uh, there's a number of ways to, to pursue the book.
1: Well, Mark Dewidziak will be with us right after this quick break. Frank McKay signing off for the moment. We'll be back with more from Mark Dewidziak right after this. I'd like to welcome everyone back to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here with the author of Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone. It's out today. Mark DeWitziac is also the TV critic for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and it is a book that I'm very excited about. And you can get it today. And everyone, go out and buy it, and don't wait till illegally download it somehow. It's impossible. You can't do it with this one. Anyway, you got to buy the book. Mark DeWitziac, welcome back.
0: Thank you, Frank. Yes, you'll be sent to the Twilight Zone if you're trying to yeah. be legally <laughs> yeah. Rod
1: will be waiting for you. Yeah. <laughs> so, listen, we were talking before the break, and I mentioned The Howling Man. And I don't know if you agree, but that stands out to me as being, especially as a young kid, the terrifying episode that I ever saw. Maybe it was the, my religious roots and the fact that you saw the devil appear right in front of you. And, and it's like, wow. you know, And you'd usually just walk away with that image in your mind, address that if you would, because it wasn't always terrifying. It was more thought-provoking. It was more, you know, surreal, some of it, but it wasn't always terrifying. Uh, Just address that if you can.
0: Well, I I think The Twilight Zone, because of its nature, and because the first thing that sort of attracts uh, people, see, I grew up in New York, too. I grew up Catholic. I grew up in New York, and uh, I didn't really discover The Twilight Zone in its first run. I I was of the fandom that, that discovered it Right after that, when it started to be rerun on, I think, WPIX, I'm not sure, but I, I, I'm pretty sure That's where that I first uh, it was Channel 11 that was was showing them. And it was being rerun on a fairly regular basis. And so I started watching them, you know, probably I was about 10 years old in 1966. I was 10. So it was right after it had. it's an it's a original run that I started seeing these in rerun in New York. And. Um, I think the first thing that attracts somebody that age to the Twilight Zone is sort of the creep-out factor, that wonderful eerie feeling you get of being creeped out, of hearing a creepy story from a friend or something like that. And and, and I think that's kind of your entry level uh, for most people into the Twilight Zone. And then as you age, you start to realize there's something more here. There's more uh, intellectual grist to this mill, and you start to realize there are uh, metaphors at play and and such. So I think that that's one thing about this is that, you know, yeah, part of it, that's certainly a big part of the twilight zone, and you can't deny that part of the appeal, but the twilight zone was not a horror show. And I think some people sometimes look at it either as a horror show or maybe even a science fiction show. And there's no question it didn't run on both. There are certain episodes, which probably would fall into the category of a horror story. And there are other stories, which would fall into the category of science fiction. But the Twilight Zone lays claim to a much bigger territory. As the opening always told us, it was as vast as space, timeless as infinity, as vast as space, and something that's that big can't be confined by genre. So, you know, the Twilight Zone was a fantasy show, and fantasy embraces horror and science fiction. It encompasses those things, but it's a much bigger tent, and this allowed the Twilight Zone to play uh, uh, and, and hit a lot of different chords that struck in the human heart. So, uh, you know, that, that gave them an ability. And I always tell people, look, no, 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 no. The Outer Limits, that was the science fiction show. Yeah. And you know, a very good show in its own right, by the way. I love, you know, I, I hate the argument that always comes down to uh, a genre argument of Ginger versus Marianne. You know, or, <laughs> uh, you know Adam, are you an Adam's Family or a Munsters person? Are, are, are you a Twilight Zone or Outer Limits person? And I always say, you got to choose. Yeah. Really? I, guess I, I love both The Outer Limits and The Twilight Zone, but The Outer Limits was a science fiction show. Thriller, at its best, the NBC series that hosted by Boris Karloff, that was the horror show. And mm. Alfred Hitchcock was the mystery show. And The Twilight Zone sort of encompassed all three. It had an element of mystery. It had an element of science fiction. It had an element of horror. And then it had just its own DNA, which was, you know, The Twilight Zone. And there's no better way to say it. It was The Twilight Zone. And, uh, but I lo- you know, I want to go back to something you said about, uh, you know, being raised Catholic and the devil and all of that. It has always struck me that, uh, you know, a Catholic upbringing or a very very strict Protestant upbringing is one of the great training grounds for horror writers. Mm. You, it's astonishing I mean, how that. many of them have that upbringing, and I think it's because when you're raised Catholic or you're raised in a very strict Protestant uh, household. Things like the devil and evil are very real to you. They're made very real to you. They're made palatably real. And you're dealing with life and death issues from a very young age. And you're dealing with big issues like salvation and redemption and and, and good and evil. And and this is all put into you. You're hotwired to this uh, as you get older. So I I think that that's one of the things that you see as a common theme. But, you know, that idea of evil being real is, a, is, is, a, is very much part of the DNA of the Twilight Zone. And it's amazing how many times the devil shows up on the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Uh, not, and, and he's always looking different. Sometimes he, she looked like Julie Newmar. Sometimes looked like Thomas Gomez and Mr. Ken Walleter in the escape clause. But the devil puts in a lot of appearances, as does Mr. Death. Death is a huge constant in the Twilight Zone. The inevitability of death, the fear of death. And, you know, death sometimes looks like that hitchhiker along the road that just keeps reappearing wherever the young woman drives. Oh, great episode. And sometimes death looks like Robert Redford. Yeah. And Agnes his message is <laughs> no, no, Gladys Cooper. Oh, and, gla- right, right, Cooper. right, right. There we go. <laughs> and uh, playing the little old lady yeah. who fears death. And finally lets him in because it looks like Robert Redford. And his final thing is, Am I so scared? Right. Am I am Am I so something to be scared of? Right. And that's just I mean and, and that's one of my favorite nothing in the dark, written by George Clayton. One of my all time favorite Twilight Zone
1: episodes. Just heavy. And any time you get into all of that, again a lot of lessons there and a lot of lessons in this book. And it's Mark DeWidziak, who is our very special guest. He's the author of Everything I Need to Know, I Learned in the Twilight Zone. And he's the TV critic for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, among the author, also the author of many, many titles. And again, this book is out today, and everyone can get it today. Frank McKay here with him. Let me switch gears a a tiny bit. The Twilight Zone, to me, was the first real binge watch. And maybe my history is not as good as you certainly won't be as good as you on this subject. But to me, I remember Twilight Zone marathons coming on in maybe the 90s. And this was before really binge watching, because binge watching came along with Netflix and all the new Amazons and, you know, all of these type of platforms, these new platforms. But you binge watch the Twilight Zone, you would watch a marathon of the Twilight Zone in the 90s, and it became so popular. And I remember the Sci-Fi Channel, I think they were doing it on New Year's end, 4th of July weekend. It was so popular. And people would sit there, even though they saw it before, they would watch and watch and watch. And they would binge watch. What is it about the Twilight Zone that allowed people, and it sounds like a rhetorical question, but I mean, that allowed people to just sit there and watch different characters each episode? Uh, No recurring I mean, there are recurring themes, but there are no recurring characters other than Rod Sterling in the very beginning and at the very end. You don't know anybody who's on there. It's brand new to you. Each episode is brand new. There's no part twos or part threes, you know, any of that. What is it about the Twilight Zone that allowed us to binge watch?
0: Well, you know, as timeless as Infinity, uh, there it it is. It's in the introduction. These stories are timeless. They hold up, even though they were done on a very low budget. There's no CGI, there's no color. Uh, the, the storytelling is what is so powerful here. The fact that you had some of the greatest storytellers of all time plying their trade on this show and then gave these great words to great actors. Every time you, yeah, Rod was the only recurring character, but every time you checked into the Twilight Zone, a great actor was waiting for you a Jack Klugman, a Burgess Merida. Uh, it was, you know, it was it was like a it was a smorgasbord every every week that you were showing up and you knew you were going to have this 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 feast of not just great ideas but those great ideas married with great acting, and I, I think that's it's an interesting thing you know because sci fi still does the, the marathon uh, every Fourth of July and every uh, New Year's Day. Oh. And that's still a tradition. And most of the people who watch it, as you said, have already watched them. Maybe they have the DVDs and watch them without commercial break. But yet, it's I think the reason they binge watch now today is because it's something we've lost in our, in our, in our culture because of the, the sheer number of channels and uh, viewing options everybody has, which is the communal viewing experience, the idea that you go to school the next day and you say, did you see that last night? That phrase has almost lost its meaning in this day and age because most people don't watch the same things. You know, when there was a one-in-three chance you were watching the same thing, and there was there, there was a great buzz back to the next day when you'd go into work or go into school uh, or whatever, and you'd say, wow, did you watch that last night? Well, you know, there's a good chance if you have ten people in a circle talking about what they watched last night, they watched ten different things. If Indeed, they watched... Uh, programmable television at all, so I think you know this is a chance for Twilight Zone fans to shift this this passion and this love for the show, and they all know in real time they're watching the same episode, and oh, wherever you're watching it around the world, you're watching it in real time, and you're watching Burgess Meredith wanting to read, nice. and we're all watching this one episode at the same time. I think that's what's kept that going. But I, I think there's a bigger point to that, which is, and I talked about this in the introduction to the book, you know, I teach two classes every semester at Kent State University, and I have since 2009. And what I have seen is common references, references that we grew up with, disappear. This is the first generation that has never lived at Mayberry. They don't know how to get to Mayberry. They don't have the roadmap. This is the first time I could say to a class, boy, this guy's a real Barney Fife. And everybody not giggle yeah, and know what yeah, right. I meant. Yeah. It's gone. It's gone, Frank. It's just, it's disappeared. Well before it, Ralph Cramden disappeared. Bang, zoom to the moon, Alice. Gone. And so they don't know who Ralph Cramden is. They've never spent any time with the Cramdens in that little apartment. They don't know hardly any black and white television show. And I think there's only two television shows, black and white TV shows, which continue to jump generation to generation. For whatever reason, they are iconic, and my students still know it. They know I Love Lucy, and they know The Twilight Zone. No. And that's it. That's it. <laughs> all the rest of black and white television, they don't know the Dick Van Dyke show. They don't know the Andy Griffith show. They don't know all of these shows that we all got generation to generation repeated and shared. And so, so that common language, those chances for a common language are disappearing, are gone. The Twilight Zone gives us a common language. And they all get it. They all get it. And, and I think, again, one of the reasons they get it is because it starts with that sort of eerie creep-out stuff that everybody loves. And so they go to it, and you say the gremlin on the wing, and they know what you're talking about. Yeah. And that's, you know, there, there's very little that jumps generation to generation. Uh, now, it used to be there was a lot because we all shared. You know, I, When I grew was growing up in New York, and I was children's television, and there's no Nickelodeon, there's no Disney Channel. So they gave us, and anybody who grew up in New York in the 19 late 1950s and the 1960s will understand what I'm going to say. is We got comedy teams. We got Abbott and Costello. We got the Three Stooges. We got Laurel and Hardy. We got the, the, the entertainment of our parents and, in some cases, our grandparents. And it was an amazing thing to be given. It was an amazing gift to be given. And we grew up watching this. This was our entertainment. And this gave us a real sense of history, the generation in front of us, uh, what they watched and such. And that has disappeared. That kind of shared stuff has disappeared. The Twilight Zone is still an ability to share something from another time, and yet it seems timeless. So that's a long answer to your question. Yeah. Well, listen, a good one. I, uh, but uh, a but I, one. I think that's it right. goes to the heart of, of, of its magic.
1: Everything I Need to Learn, I. No, I'm sorry, Everything I Need to Know, I Learned in the Twilight Zone is the name of the book. The author is Mark DeWidziak. And he's the author of many books, but we're focused on this one today. Again, Everything I Need to Know, I Learned in the Twilight Zone. And he is the longtime TV critic for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And uh, it's uh, we're talking. Again, Frank McKay here with Mark DeWidziak talking about one of the iconic shows of all time, and that is the Twilight Zone. And uh, you know how many people watched the Planet of the Apes early on and didn't connect that Rod Serlin had done the uh, the, the screenplay uh, for mm-hmm. that. Uh, yeah. How how many people watched the 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 Planet of the Apes all the way through and never thought Twilight Zone once, and then once you once you realize that Sterling had something to do with it, uh, you realize how great he is. That It didn't look like a Twilight Zone episode. It didn't feel like a Twilight Zone episode. But uh, really, one of the great movies of all time in my book, and certainly one of the great you know, fantasy and sci-fi films of all time. But underneath is that social commentary. And at the end, we Idiot. find out that it's an anti-war movie. And who would have thought? You know, you're you're watching this whole movie, and you're hearing it, and you're seeing this. And look at the chimps, look at the apes, look at look at the orangutans. You, you're not thinking for one second. But what happens at the end? What happens at the end is mind blowing to the first time viewer. If there was anything I could watch for the first time ever again, it would be Twilight Zone episodes, but it would also be Planet of the Apes. And Serling put it together. At the screenplay was just so brilliant in that. And and if you can, I mean, uh, address that. How many of your how, how many of your students immediately know that Planet of the Apes is uh, the original is is a Rod Serling uh, piece? They don't. They don't.
0: <laughs> they they they, they never in the world would. But then if you sort of point out to them the, the 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 themes of the of the Planet of the Apes is you know Rod was incapable of not writing about the things that that he was so interested, and in. you see in the live dramas of the 1950s, in the Twilight Zone, and in everything else he wrote. You see him returning to these same things, these things which he was passionately caring about. Um, You know, he'd known war. I mean, the thing about Rod Serling is, when he talks about war, you're talking about somebody who was a paratrooper in the South Pacific during World War II, who was in incredibly fierce fighting, who saw uh, and, and, and carried the scars of it, you know, won a Purple Heart and uh, carried the, the the scars of being wounded uh, for, for all those. He turned to writing because of the war. He turned to writing uh, after the war to sort of work out a lot of the stuff that he'd seen. Uh, so he was incapable of not returning to these themes. You see um, a movie like Seven Days in May and and play, and. and, and put that side by side with Planet of the Apes and he wrote the screenplay Seven Days in May Mm, which is about the possible um, a possible military coup of the United States government and you watch those two and you couldn't have two more different movies than Seven Days in May and Planet of the Apes and yet there's something incredibly similar about them because the the dialogue is so Rod Serling like in both films and you're watching these two films and you realize that they share a lot of DNA and the DNA is Rod. Uh, and, you know, even when he, he enters into the in night gallery in the last phase of his career, and he has another anthology series, which he didn't really have control of. And he was never happy with night gallery, but some of his best episodes in night gallery, like they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar, which is about an aging businessman played by William Wyndham, who feels like life has passed him by. And he longs for a better time, a simpler time in his early career. Those are things you see in Rod Serling's work, like Walking Distance in the Twilight Zone or Stop at Willoughby. And you see it in his earliest earliest TV dramas like Patterns. So Rod's kind of always working it out. He's kind of always going back. He had an amazing, uh, not just a view of war and his view of society. And he he did – I think if you asked Rod, you know, what do you hate more than anything else, he probably would have said prejudice. He was uh, – and if you look at all the things that he was interested in, one of the things that always recurs is how we treat the elderly. That theme shows up again and again and again in Rod Serling's work. As early as the 19 – early 1950s, you see Rod – Caring about what we do with people at the other end of the spectrum, the people who society may view as disposable or used up or done. And Rod returns to that theme a lot throughout his career, you know, and he only lived to be 50. He didn't live to be an old man.
1: Yeah, know, Amazing. He had a lot more life left in them. And again, I, I was so honored to talk to Anne Serling, who I know is a dear friend of yours. And I've had her on the show a couple of times. And she's just absolutely tremendous. Mark Dawidziak is the author of Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone. Frank McKay here with the author of the book that is released today. Please, everyone get it. I've got a couple of moments left. I wanted to ask you about one of my favorite episodes. And one of the reasons it's my favorite is because I see a lot of Sterling in it, even though I'm pretty sure Matheson wrote it. I think it was Ralph Nelson directed it, A World of His Own, right? Is that? Oh, Keen- yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. Now he creates this life. He creates this family. This writer. He's alone in his, you know, his little workspace there, and he's creating, and and then all of a sudden the wife is getting on him, and whatever, and you don't realize until later. It's he's created these characters, and he's created this world, and for some reason whenever I see that episode, I tend to think that. Rod Sterling really related with that somehow. And I don't know, maybe it's just my own imagination. But was that ever pointed out from him? Did he ever comment on that particular episode?
0: No, that I know of, except, you know, that it, it also, that, it's interesting, you, you, it, that was the last episode aired in the first season, uh, A World of His Own. And it also marks Rod's first appearance on camera. In a Twilight uh. Zone episode, because previously, his if you look at the first season episodes, his narrations were always done as voiceovers. You didn't see Rod uh, in the episode. So if you're watching a Twilight Zone episode and you don't see Rod, you're watching a first season episode. All the ones you think of where, you know, it opens and their Rod is standing there holding the cigarette and, you know, uh, talking about what's going to happen. That started with second season and they put Rod on camera. So Rod didn't really appear, but this is Mark's first actual appearance in a Twilight. Zone. He did like the commercial bumps and things like that, so people knew what he looked like. But uh, in that one, which ended, the, the it ends with a joke. It ends with the the fact that you know Rod is actually in the episode, and uh, Keenan Wynn plays the writer. And it is Richard Matheson's story. It is yeah. Richard Matheson's story. But I think it, it, it goes to the it, as lighthearted as that series. That, that that they didn't do many comedies on The Twilight Zone. They did a few, and some of them are very good, uh, like Mr. Beavis yeah. or Mr. Garrity in the Grave. Uh, you know, they they did uh, do the, uh, their, their share of comedies. But uh, a world of his own is is basically a comedic view of things, and yet it has, I think, one of the best messages of, of all, and it has. Not only one of the best messages, it goes a message which goes to the very heart of the Twilight Zone, which is, what is this writer doing? He's imagining a better world, a better world for himself. But isn't that kind of the message of the Twilight Zone? Imagine a better world? Mm -hmm. Isn't that the whole idea of why we turn to the Twilight Zone? To sort of imagine a better world? So I love the message of that
1: one. I can't think of a better place to end, and we're just about out of time, but you're so right, and we're kind of ending with the episode that ended the first season of The Twilight Zone, which is maybe ironic. What is an ending? It's just starting Is the release of this book. Mark DeWidziak has been our very special guest. Everything I Need to Know, I Learned, in The Twilight Zone is the name of the book. He is the TV critic long-time TV critic for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. He's a professor at Kent State. Frank McKay here with Mark. Just absolutely thrilled to have him every time I get him, and every time we get an opportunity, we grab him. Mark D'Wizziak, I want to thank you very much. And any last thoughts? we got got 30 seconds left. Last thoughts on the book, where they can get it, where's the best place to reach you?
0: Well, it's going to be in bookstores. I know that Barnes & Noble is going to, make it a, uh, going to, going to carry it. I know, obviously, Amazon is always a good place to go, uh, so uh, it, it, it's widely available. But, you know, I, I, what I don't want to leave people with is the idea that this is a heavy book. This is really a very lighthearted book. It's like a series of discussions. I try to make it very conversational, and it's almost as if these 50 life lessons are like 50 little discussions with people about sharing our love of the Twilight Zone. And, you know, my uh, admiration for Rod Serling, because, you know, as I say early in the book, Uh, my heroes have always been writers and Rod Sterling was uh, a personal hero from childhood on. You know, he was one of the people who made me want to be a writer. So, you know, this this is a little bit of a payback, too, for for that. To say, thank you.
1: Well, listen, well done, not only with this, but with your whole career, and it's still going very strong. Everything I need to know, I learned in the Twilight Zone, is Mark DeWidziak's latest effort. Frank McKay here with the author signing off. We will see all you next time on Breaking It Down. This is Breaking It Down with your host, Frank McKay, on 1071 WLIRFM Hampton Bay's.